See, I am coming soon. My reward is with me to repay according to everyone's work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they might have the right to the tree of life and may enter the city by the gates. It is I, Jesus, who sent my angel to you with this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, Come. And let everyone who hears say, Come. Let everyone who is thirsty come. Let anyone who wishes take the water of life as a gift. The one who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all the saints. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Fifteen years ago, 1994, our Barton Clinton Gordy presenter was Dr. Bruce Metzger. I told you for two years before that what an outstanding man he was and that he was coming to share his many years of expertise with you and me. The Saturday that he was due to arrive was a beautiful, crisp February Saturday. I was out with my family almost all day. I dropped Gail by the parsonage, and then I hurried to the airport to meet Dr. Metzger. When I walked down the concourse to the gate, you could still do it back then, I saw our administrator, Karen Kramer. I knew that was not a good sign. And when I got a little closer to her, she said, Dr. Metzger called and said, they've had a nor'easter up in New Jersey, New York. He was a professor, Princeton Theological Seminary, and a little low-pressure area right off the coast had been dumping snow on New Jersey for 36 hours. He had sat in the airport in Newark all day long, waiting for them to get the runways plowed so that he could fly to Tulsa. And finally, just before dark, he and others had been told there will be no planes taking off from Newark tonight. Go home. He said to Karen, I will be back first thing in the morning. I will be on the first plane going to Atlanta and then on to Tulsa. I had to hurry by the church. I picked up a half dozen books. I went home and I studied till after midnight to be ready to preach to you the next morning. Late Sunday afternoon, I was out at the airport. Planes did not take off from Newark until afternoon, and by the time he was able to get on a plane headed for Atlanta, he had missed his connection, of course. So now he had sat in Atlanta for a couple of hours, waiting for the next flight to Tulsa. You who had come that night were singing and singing and singing, and I was waiting for him at the airport. I knew that Dr. Metzger had just had his 80th birthday and he had been sitting around an airport for two long miserable days and now had flown a couple of hours to Atlanta and a couple hours more to Tulsa when I helped him to my car I said do you need to go to the bathroom can I get you a drink of water coca-cola he said you just tell him my name I'm ready and when we walked in, I told you his name, and he stepped up without a note and mesmerized our congregation for 45 minutes. He was amazing, absolutely amazing. He lived to be 93 before he died. His specialty, all those years at Princeton, 
the writings of the Johannine community, that community that centered around John, brother of James, one of the sons of Zebedee. The Gospel of John, the three letters of John, the revelation of John. And in one of his presentations he said this, and I took special note, if you read John's revelation and you come away frightened, you didn't understand the book. This book of John is about encouragement. This book is about love. This book is about comfort for those who believe. Dr. Eugene Boring says, the revelation of John has three important things to say. God is the sovereign. Finally, ultimately, he reigns over all. But this all-powerful God is compassionate and he is forgiving. So once again, you and I have been from Genesis 1, where it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, to Revelation 22, where it says, Maranatha, come again, Lord Jesus. What is this all-important book trying to say to you and me? I've written down four things. Number one, God believes in you even when you do not believe in Him or in yourself. Alma Barkman lives up in Winnipeg in Canada. She has written about their big fair, similar to our Tulsa State Fair. And she said one of the things that she and her husband enjoys more than any other to see the big draft horses that work the fields outside Winnipeg. She said we have these humongous horses, beautiful, and they come into the arena in teams of eight. Two, four, six, eight horses pulling each wagon. These massive animals are so strong that the driver looks so tiny sitting up there on the front of that wagon with both feet bracing himself in and holding eight reins in his hands. Now, she said, as these huge animals come into the arena, there may be end, end up being six or eight teams at one time. And I've noticed the ears of these horses, particularly the two who are out front, they're moving their ears to hear the only voice that really matters to them, their driver. When you really want to hear, when you really listen, you can hear the voice, the only voice that really matters. Number two, God forgives you. Even when you do not forgive God, even when you do not forgive yourself or others, God is the one who forgives. Mary Lou Carney lives in a town called Chesterton, Indiana. She said that for many years of her adult life, she prepared breakfast every morning for her husband and children. And she knew what it was like to have one kid wanting a pancake, and another one scrambled eggs, and another one egg over easy or poached, and one wants toast, and one wants a biscuit. Well, she said, I didn't give them all those choices. I just heard their complaints if I made pancakes for everybody or scrambled eggs for everybody. But she said, now that I'm older, one of the things I enjoy so much is going out for breakfast. 
And on the way to my favorite cafe in Chesterton, I think about, what do I want today? Maybe a pancake and an egg with a piece of bacon. Maybe just bacon and eggs. Maybe just pancake and sausage. Or biscuits with jelly and some good hot coffee. I like this cafe, she said, in Chesterton. They have a way of honoring their waitresses. Every time I've been there, all the waitresses have on aprons immaculately washed and ironed. And right up on the top of the bib, beautiful stars, embroidered stars in a bright color. And these stars tell how long this waitress has been working in this cafe. So some have five stars, eight stars, ten, twelve, fifteen stars. But she said, recently I went to the cafe one morning. I was seated in my booth. I had my menu and a very young woman came to wait on me. And I looked at her apron. There were no stars. But in the same bright color, beautiful embroidery, rising star, it said. Rising star. We believe in you. You're going to do great things. Do you hear the Almighty who breathed into you his own ruach, his own breath, saying, I believe in you. I forgive you when you do not believe in me. I want to help you. Number three, he loves you even when you don't love him, even when you don't love yourself. Evelyn Bentz lives in Alexandria, Virginia. But she has recently written about being in New York City and going to see the Metropolitan Museum. She said that she and a friend were walking through this wonderful place, looking at painting after painting, when suddenly they stood right before one of Claude Monet's paintings, the cathedral at Rouen. And she said, I, I knew I had seen Claude Monet's painting of that cathedral before, and the colors didn't look right. And I asked one of the curators there, uh, you sure this is... I've seen this painting and the colors were not the same and the curator said oh Mr. Monet painted the cathedral at Rouen many times different times of day different times of the year Gail and I took a train from Paris out to Giverny to see the home of Claude Monet he lived in that particular home the last 43 years of his life he was born in Paris, 1840. Uh, when he was only 17, his mother died. That traumatic experience always affects us. When we lose someone that close, there's always a hole in our hearts. Uh, we may learn to function, but the hole is still there in our hearts. Claude Monet fell in love with a beautiful young woman when he was 25, her name Camille. Two years later, their first son was born, and the next year, Claude Monet attempted to kill himself. He attempted suicide. He finally had a sponsor who would help him. He could paint, and his paintings could sell. Things got better for him. He and Camille had a second son. But in time, 
Camille would die and he would bury her as he had his mother. Second wife, Alice, would die and he would bury her. First son would die and he would bury him. You've seen pictures that he painted of his home, the gardens in particular, and the lily pond just beyond. They've maintained this beautiful home all of these years. You can walk through it room by room. You can look out from the second story window where he looked as he grew older and see all these flowers down below you. It's not a carefully manicured garden. You have big swatches of flowers, perennials and annuals that grow there. Really, really beautiful, all kinds of colors. And he painted them in an impressionistic style, as you recall. The lily pond is just beyond, and he painted it any number of times. There's a little bridge there and willow trees. Sometimes the water lilies were blooming, sometimes at other times of the year not. He painted them season after season. But what about that cathedral at Rouen? He painted it 30 different times. Drawn to it, he went back again and again. He sat across the street from the cathedral at Rouen. He was there when it was still dark. He watched those first rays of the rising sun strike the cathedral. The midday sun, mid-afternoon sun, the late dying sun in the evening, and the next morning the cathedral was still there, the next morning still there, the next morning still there. It was there long before Claude Monet was born. It's been there long after he died. I am Alpha and Omega, the first one who spoke, the first one who moved, the first one who caused. I will be there at the end. This community that surrounded John would say, God so loved the world that he gave his only son Jesus, but whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. This one whom we sing about, he's the lily of the valley, he's the bright and morning star. You know the bright and morning star is really the planet Venus. It's Venus. That just after the darkest part of night, Venus rises bright, bright. Ancients thought it was a star. It's a planet. But when Venus shines brightest, it's just before sunrise. The Lord Jesus came to say, God loves you. God forgives you. God believes in you. Number four. God has done everything necessary to save you. He has done everything necessary to save you. Even if you think you don't need saving. Even if you think you're not worth saving. Three months ago, Holy Week, I was reading devotional materials. Elizabeth Sherrill had written about being in her church the year before Good Friday. She and her husband belong to an Episcopal church and they have the full three hours from noon to 3 p.m. on Good Friday. I've been a part of those three-hour services. When I was in seminary, I sang in the seminary singers. It was an all-male group at that time, all those years ago. First tenor, second tenor, baritone bass, a four-part men's chorus. Dr. Lloyd Fouts was our director tremendous fellow, wonderful, big bass voice himself, but he did the seven last words of Jesus. 
did arrangements of those, went back through history and picked out what he considered seven of the greatest sermons ever written, one about each of those last words. I remember that one was from the pen of Martin Luther 500 years ago, one from John Calvin 500 years ago, St. Thomas Aquinas, Chrysostom, John Wesley. He picked a first tenor, a young man who had an unusually clear, powerful voice to sing the words of Jesus. The rest of us, second tenors, baritones and basses, we had important parts, but the voice that sang the words, a first tenor, when he cried out, I thirst, I thirst. When Jesus looked down and saw his mother grieving, seeing her son die this horrible death on a Roman cross, and he saw John so close by and he said, Woman, woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. I'm giving you my mother. Look after her. Do you understand? Just before three o'clock in the afternoon, this high tenor voice singing out in Aramaic, Eli, Eli, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Moments later to say, Abba, my Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Elizabeth said as those three hours went on, it got heavier and heavier. Finally, the hour of three o'clock came. She got in her car to drive home. She remembered a couple of friends of theirs who were big Dallas Cowboy fans. She said they came from Texas. They loved the Dallas Cowboys. The Dallas Cowboys have had great years and they've had some really lousy years. And particularly the last few years when they miss a field goal they ought to have made, when there's a pass that could have won the game, when there's an interception just at the moment that victory seems so sure. She said they love the Dallas Cowboys so much and want them to win so badly that they just quit going to the games. So they cannot take it, cannot take another loss. What they do is record the game and wait for the news to say whether the Cowboys won or lost. And only if they won do they turn on the television and enjoy every minute. And Elizabeth Sherrill said, as I drove home on Good Friday with these haunting cries of Christ in my head, I thought, Christians, get up and go to the game. We know how this game ends.